You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's program, Father Paul concludes his discussion of Abram by touching on the covenant of circumcision. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. With chapter 17, we have circumcision that includes already the nations. That's why they are part of the biblical story that are around, you know, Aram and Syria and Egypt and Babylonia. But it is in conjunction with the story of the main, if you like, actors, nation that is Israel slash Judah that is systematically misbehaving. And it is under the umbrella, and I would like to end with that, of the circumcision that the people misunderstood. They thought that the way the Christians now behave towards baptism, just do the sign of the cross or show a paper signed by the bishop, you're showing your circumcision, but God is not interested. This is only a sign. We'll develop all that later, but I'm trying to show my hearer this interconnection in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, where ultimately God, with his finger, does a circumcision, because the people tell me, God does not circumcise, we do it. And he said, no, no, no. In the Bible, it is written there that I shall circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. He does a circumcision. So it's really very powerful how we have a revisitation of that basic story of 1-4 that we encountered again between 5 and 11 that we encounter again for the third time and the importance of number three, as you know, with Abram. And then we begin chapter 18, that with the covenant of circumcision controls the entire story. And again, it is very obvious that no one hears about the circumcision at all. You know, it is not mentioned. What is mentioned is precisely the covenant of doing God's will, which is already part of the dealing with Abraham and then Isaac, as I repeated, because he has followed my dictates. So, again, obviously, my main point was the story of Abraham, but I wanted to present it as link, how it is connected with the before and also with the after. And then let me finish with something I have mentioned already before, but it's always worthwhile to come back to it, that ultimately the one who inherits Hebron, 
the city of Abraham is the Caleb outsider. And by the way, let me add this interesting thing that his father's name, Jephuneh, Jephuneh, is from a verb in a specific form, which means to be standing outside, forced to stay outside, is an outsider, even the name of the father of Caleb. And there is an interesting passage, which I would like to read here in Genesis 24, 31. In the story of the servant of Abraham going to find a bride for Isaac, and then the uncle of Rebekah says, he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And specifically, we have here one of the rare instances of that verb, Fana, Pana, in the Pi'al, okay? And Jephune is in the Pu'al, the passive, the one that is put outside. Another example of the centrality of the meaning of names in the original. Okay, I hope I have done, but we shall revisit this slowly on when we go a chapter by chapter. But I thought this would be a nice introduction to the totality, one more time, of the story of Abram. Technically, we can call this podcast Abram, just like that. Okay, gentlemen. Drawing the parallel between Noah and Abram and the covenants, you know, and reading those again with your guidance, you know, it occurs to me that Noah's arriving on the land and Abram is arriving in the land and, you know, that there's so many things going on. And coming to the land and the nations, one thing I noticed is that with Abram, it's the land of the ten tribes of whom the Canaanites are one. But then when it's Abraham, it's the land of the Canaanites. And it doesn't mention the other nine tribes. Can you help me understand what the difference is between the land of the ten tribes and then the land of the of, of the Canaanites? Yeah. The first time we encounter the mention of nations with Abram is just the Canaanites. The second one is Canaanites, Perizzites. Perizzites is an explanation. We're not talking about something localized, but something that is spread. And then we have the ten. So every time in the future when you hear Canaanites, you are hearing actually in Hebrew is in the singular, the Canaanite. Anyone who is like that, who lives in the scriptural Canaan, which again is picked up later at the beginning of Joshua, where we hear only about the Hittites suddenly. Okay, so the scriptural Canaan is not just what we call the basic geographical Canaan. It is expanded. Okay, but because the story of the Bible was posited by the authors in this part of the world that one refers to it, Canaan, you know, southern Lebanon and Palestine and so on, the authors decided for this name. But then again, the scriptural Canaan is inclusive. One more time, you have Canaanites, then Canaanites, Perizzites, and then you have the ten. 
this is unmissable. Technically, it should not be missed. And I added the example of Joshua to just confirm my thing about the Hittite. And then slowly on in chapter 23, you have Abraham burying his wife, okay, in Canaan, but in the field of a Hittite. I mean, this is powerful. So the authors are stretching your mind, and this will culminate, which we covered earlier in other podcasts, namely that the kingdom extends to the Euphrates with Solomon having built Tadmor. You see, that's my answer to the question. I answered the why, but then, you know, it's how it functions, it moves. As I repeat in many of my papers, Canaan is the land of God's promise. But then this God ultimately is the Elohim, whose world, if you like, are the heavens that are proper to him, but the earth, earth, not the globe, they didn't know that it was round, but any part that you hit as a dry land and where the human beings and the mammals can live. So it is comprehensive, I would say. It's interesting, Father Paul, you know, you've mentioned this in the past, the way in which, you know, Paul isn't just criticizing and attacking and deconstructing this fallacy of identity in Galatians, but he's actually pointing to something deeper, which you talked about again today on the podcast, that not only is circumcision not about the identity of your group as opposed to other groups. Circumcision is an inclusive mechanism in the Old Testament. So really in the New Testament, Paul is saying, not only is identity a fallacy, but you're reading Genesis incorrectly. That's why in Romans, very clearly, which is the development of Galatians, you know, in 9 through 11, he says to the Gentiles, which are represented by Rome at that time, watch out, friends. You're no better than the scriptural Israel. <laughs> That's the ultimate message. No one is better. Meaning that the Bible is telling you, is telling you indirectly, that's what I call the curveball, <laughs> that look friend, just read the Bible, assuming that in the divine flip of the coin, God would have chosen the Minnesotans. The biblical story of the Minnesotans would have sounded exactly like the biblical story of Israel. That is the bottom line. This is what does not matter. Basically, Israel, and you notice Canaan, how in chapter 10, you know, the Canaanites spread. It is mentioned in the beginning verses. So when you read about Canaan, already you see that he or it is representative. Again, it's the texts that speak. And I'm always very apprehensive about drawing 
theological conclusions or a point. There is no point and no theological conclusion. It is what it is. And in this sense, Romans 9 to 11, it's a very important piece of scripture. That's why at its end, Paul refuses to act as Elijah acted, as though there is no one but him. Anyway, I mean, that's what scripture is all about. Again, as I said, and it's repeated by many of my students, and one has discovered it recently, and send me an email to tell me, Father Paul, you know, I think you're right on this point. The more you know scripture, the more you know scripture. <laughs> Period. And the more is not only, like people say, the creme de la creme, the essence. There is no essence. That's platonic. The message is within the words. Here again, theology here, the word. There is no word. You cannot talk only with one word. It's impossible. Even if you eliminate the verb is, you have to end with you there. You by itself, there by itself has no meaning. I mean, we have to settle for that. And that's what I'm inviting everybody to make the effort. And uh, this example I gave is very impressive. A former student of mine who suddenly, you know, discovered and he decided to write a paper for the symposium and so on. Uh, he's just, and he's a major, he's finishing his doctorate in music. But he followed my teaching and he realized there is something there. So it's really very impressive. And one has to. Just submit to it. Obviously, this is my answer. If someone else would like to try to give another answer, I have no problem with that, so long as the answer of that other person reflects the data of Scripture. Not quote me a North European theologian or exegete of the 18th century. It doesn't help. Scripture is scripture. Anyway, I believe that was an important topic, which I discovered only this past. I mean, discovered in the sense I amassed a bit in preparing for this podcast. Thank you, sirs. Thank you, sirs. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network. 